Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity, go to our Facebook page and like our page. You can also follow us on Twitter at 814-NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue. I am certain that you have read in the newspaper about the recent school shooting at Erie High, unfortunately. Today we're joined by two very special guests because they can both put this whole situation into context for us because they have extensive histories and backgrounds with the Erie School District. Today I'm joined by uh, Daryl, Brother D. Craig, and Daria Devlin. Uh, Daryl and Daria, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marcus. Today we discuss the Erie High School shooting, how we got here, and where do we go from here. And so before we get started, I'll start with you, Daria. If you could just talk about your background with the Erie School District. I know that you're a newly elected school board member, and congratulations on that. But just take us back a little bit and talk about your um, journey with the Erie School District to include PEPs leading up to this moment. Sure, and thanks for having me this morning. Certainly appreciate it. Um, I like to tell people that my whole life is the Erie School District. Um, was a student myself back in the early 80s. Um, really proud of the fact that I'm a graduate of Central High School. It was an important formative time for me. Um, when I had my own children, made a decision to live in the city and send them. I thought that was incredibly important to support the city. Um, and when I was starting my career, I began as a grant writer for nonprofits. And so this was about you know, 2012, 13, 14, when the district's budget crisis was just coming to light. And I went to Jay Bat at that time and said, man, we got to do something. You know, I'm a grant writer. Can I help? And also, what about a model of raising private dollars for the district? At that time, we founded the Partnership for Aries Public Schools as a separate 501c3 to just do that. Um, so it was great work. I was a volunteer trying to help those, you know, raise those funds. And then in 2015, um, there was an opportunity to um, fill the position of the communications director. And Jay asked me to take that position on as well. And so I stepped into that right at the moment when the budget crisis hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, you know, worked closely with Jay, with Brian Polito, with the team, um, with Daryl and all of us community members to rally for the additional funding we needed. And so, you know, then I was instrumental in 2017 when Erie High was created. Um, I took the students through the process of renaming and branding that school. So had a lot of interaction with the kids at that time as to what was happening. Um, I left the district in, in 2019 to, to take on a role as an executive director of ECAT here in the city. And as you said, just was elected to the Erie School Board. So I can see it, I think, from a lot of different perspectives mm-hmm. at this time. You were also instrumental during that that, that merger of the high schools into one, you brought a group of students up here for one of my favorite interviews to talk to them about how they felt about this transition. I was just thinking about that this morning mm-hmm. and thinking, man, we got to listen to kids more. That was a great day when we did that. We got to do more of that, listening mm-hmm. to the kids for sure. And so I'll touch on this later, but Central High, this is this is unique for you because you actually walk these very halls under a different name, same school though. Absolutely. And I went through that closure process. I started my ninth grade year at Academy High School and so went through the process of combination, tech closed. We all went over to Central. So when I walked that path with the kids at Erie High in 2017, it felt a little bit like deja vu mm-hmm. doing that all again. And lastly, during my days with Servere, you were instrumental in us renovating that school, brokering that whole thing. You were the liaison between ourselves and the Erie School District and kind of smoothed that process for us as well. Absolutely. And Marcus, I think about so often the role you had in that. And I just want to say again, thank you, because you were the one that came to us and made that happen. And it was important at that time. It remains important. So thanks for that as well. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And so as you can see, Daria's roots run really, really deep with this. I mean, this is a topic where it's, it is, it's sensitive 
And I know there are a lot of people that are jumping on microphones or jumping in their inboxes or getting on their keyboards and everyone has something to say. And I wanted to introduce a couple of people that actually have the moral high ground to speak on this because this has been their lives. We go to Brother Brother Daryl Craig, Brother D., Talk about your background with the Erie School District, your role with uh, Creative Community Connectors, a.k.a. the Blue Coats. Uh, yes, our role started with the Erie School District over 16 years ago. It doesn't seem that long, but it has been over 16 years ago. And it started as just an idea and a desire to see what we could do to help. Um, being a grassroots group of people who were seeing the changes coming in our uh, community, we saw the violence escalating. We saw that there were different groups coming in from other cities. And me being from Buffalo, New York, knew what that would possibly look like if it went unchecked. And so when um, we had one of, our, one of the East High students wound up getting killed, uh, Daquan Crosby, uh, was murdered. Well, I wouldn't even actually call it was a murder. He was caught in a crossfire between his friend and some other people, and he lost his life. But nevertheless, there was a gun scare at East. Uh, we went over to help out. Uh, Brother Andre Horton and myself went over to help out with uh, the crowds. Parents were showing up just like they did at this last one. And you're talking about deja vu. Oh, my God. Being at Erie High took me right back to East that day when those parents more or less stormed the doors of East High and demanded that their children be sent out because somebody said there was a gun in the school. It was actually the first interaction that we had had with this violence in, uh, you know, at one of our schools. We assisted them with crowd control. It came to the attention of the superintendent, Dr. Barker. At that time, we were invited for a meeting. They felt like uh, our presence might could help with some other issues like the fighting that was going on. And I believe it was November 6th of that year, which was 2006 or 2007, I don't remember, uh, we actually started going to schools. Mm-hmm. And we haven't stopped. And so we've watched the Erie School District go through a bunch of changes. Uh, when you talk about the merger, you talk about the uh, rally for fair funding, we went through it all. And we saw a lot of stuff. But the one thing that sticks out the most to me in spite of all the obstacles that we all face, you were there mm-hmm. for the fair funding rally. You were there for the merger. And you yourself have firsthand knowledge of this. If you think back, no matter what the obstacles were, we persevered. We kept going. And we made some stuff happen. Mm-hmm. We didn't accomplish everything that we set out to do, but we did accomplish a lot of great things. There was a big uproar about the merger. Oh, they're going to be killing each other. There's going to be wholesale shootings, and you got all these kids in the same building, and nobody is talking about the fact that there was not a peep mm-hmm. of gang activity or gang violence associated with the merger. It's a lie. It's not true. I was there. You yourself went out ahead. Daria went out ahead. We talked to the students. We listened to the students. That's important. And one of the things that we did, and thanks to uh, shout out to Coach Rob Matz, who began to hold the uh, football team mini camps, bringing all the students from the other high schools that were going to come into Erie High together before School actually started, and we started to dispel the division by telling them, you know, East is gone, Strong Vincent's gone, Central Tech is gone. No matter how we like it, 
it's going to be eerie high, and you all are eerie high. So let me do this real quick. Daria, I want you to speak to this because one of the things that you start to hear because of the influence that the Blue Coats have on the students of the Erie School District, you have copycat groups who make an assumption that, well, we can put on different color vests and have a, a similar impact. You have other groups who make an assumption, well, why not come to us? Talk to us a bit about what makes the impact of the unique, the impact of the Blue Coats so unique in the Erie School District. Absolutely. And I mean, I really appreciate, again, just want to say, I'm, I'm so grateful to be here with Brother D today. It's such an honor and, and what he's done for this district. You know, the Blue Coats are authentic. That's the word that I use when right. I talk about them. They are part of our community. Um, certainly, they're led by an amazing leader in Brother D, but it's not just him. Um, the message that they send for peace, the understanding that they have of what is actually happening in the lives of our students, the compassion that they bring to the work, mm -hmm. I think that's what makes them unique, and the trust that they have. I mean, I will tell people from time to time, Brother D is a man who has never let us down, not me personally not the district, never let us down. And that has trickled down to the Blue Coats. They recognize the trust that they hold, and they have never let us down. And I think that's what makes them unique. Excellent. Thank you for using that word authentic, because I think that that's key. Now, just to take it a step further before I go back to Brother D, give us an idea of, of the way the students themselves react to the impact of the Blue Coats, just based on your own common knowledge. Sure. And I think it's really important. You know, the Blue Coats are not um, security guards. They're, right. they're not intended to just walk the halls and scare what people. What we want to establish. Absolutely. That's not what they do. Now, do they disrupt violence? They sure do, because again, the students trust them. They know when they're around, this is not the time to be messing around. And so they are able to disrupt violence. But the compassion part also comes into play. They're not just stopping what's happening. They're taking the time to talk to these kids. What's happening? What's going on? What do you need? How can we help? They take it to the next level and the kids see them in the community. And that's the most important part. Relationships with trusted individuals who they see in their own community, that's what they bring to the table. And I, the kids get it. And that's why I think when the blue coats are around, for the most part, the kids understand it's not time to mess around. Brother D, you mentioned something about the, the way we came together during the fair funding. Fidaria wrote a very good op-ed about that very thing. We'll touch on that a little bit later. I want to talk about an article because you were instrumental also on this side of the equation as well. There was an article written February 26, 2022 by Ed Pelletella and Tim Hahn. And the title was Rise in Juvenile Offenses leads unified eerie anti-crime effort to focus on middle school kids. I remember vividly in these meetings that you were the voice saying, listen, we need to pivot. And this was before anybody else was thinking about it. I was in the room. We need to pivot. These shooters are getting younger and younger, and I'm getting concerned. Talk about that moment that made you announce such a thing at the Unified Area meeting, because I remember it really wasn't on people's radar until you hit the alarm button. Well, for me, it was being out in the community as Daria spoke and seeing firsthand that some of the individuals that I was encountering, some of the uh, um, incidents that were starting to happen were younger people. And then it only made sense that a lot of the individuals that were caught up in these acts of violence that were joining these little networks that they call gangs, you know, the Four Nations, the 1800s, had siblings that were uh, following them around. Remember the video? Yep. 
where the guys had all the guns sure and the did. drugs, and they had a line of little kids sure did. in front of them flashing the gang signs. Sure well, these young people were in our schools, and these young people were following in the footsteps of those who were doing these acts at the time, so it only made sense. And as I said, being out in the community and seeing some of it happen, we had to have something in place. It's one thing to address the issue, but if we don't address the root of the issue, it's just going to reproduce more fruit in season. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're seeing now, is that it's the season for those same kids that were in those videos flashing those gang signs. These are the kids doing the shooting today. Let's say more about that, because I know for a fact that many of our listeners, especially our radio listeners, we have two different audiences. We've got our Facebook Live audience, mm -hmm. our radio audience. Some of those audience members intersect, but for the most part, these are two different audiences, especially our radio listeners. A lot of them don't understand this lifestyle. They don't get what's going on. They're reading the newspaper, and I know many people are scratching their heads at how does a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, how does a child that young get caught up in the lifestyle so deep that they are actually brandishing a firearm and using it. Can you speak to that and try, try to help people understand what's going on in these communities that lends itself to such a problem? When you have impoverished conditions that rest predominantly in one area, the people of that area begin to resort to desperate means to feed, clothe, and shelter themselves, or just responding to the pains of poverty. The average young, and I won't say black, because you see it in white neighborhoods too, the average kid that goes out on the corner and begins to indulge in criminal activity at a young age, it's mostly due to some lack in the home. And so he comes out to the streets to try to uh, uh, meet that need. And so... When that lack persists for generations, so does that response persist for generations. So just as Big Bruh came out the house, Big Brother came out the house, and he said, you know, I'm tired of going to school with raggedy clothes, and I'm being held to task every time uh, there's an event or like the first day of school, everybody's showing up with new clothes, but I can't come to school the first day. We see it every year where a certain portion of students won't come to school the first week because they don't have that new pair of Jordans. They don't have that new outfit to wear to school. And kids are vicious and mean, and it's been going on all throughout history. We rip on each other, clown each other, however it's said these days, clap on each other. And they say, I'm not going to put myself through that. But if I can find a way to meet that need, whether it's picking up drugs, whether it's committing a crime, then... It worked for certain other people that I know, mm -hmm. and this is what I'm going to do. There's so many dynamics and, and motivators in that. Some of it's mental health, some of it's necessity, some of it is that that lifestyle's been glamorized through music and video. Uh, some of it, like for me, it was because that's what they did in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They gangbanged. Everybody in my neighborhood was in the Fruit Belt Mad Dogs. So I didn't want to be the odd man out. It was dangerous to be the odd man out, too. So I followed. 
And so there's a, a few dynamics that goes in there, but most of it is driven by poverty. I want to give you two things along those lines that I'd like for you to speak into, and then we'll move forward with the story. One, there's a distinct connection between many of the people on the street, many of which were young men, uh, during the late 80s and 90s that went to prison. Mm -hmm. By no coincidence, and speak to this, please, many of these young men and some women in the game, some of which are shooters, are the sons and grandsons of some of these same players. Speak to that, please. Absolutely. So here's that cultural thing, generational mm -hmm. thing, right? Um, our first heroes are usually found within our family. Our first role models are usually found within our family. For some of us, like take myself, for instance, when I was in the streets, that was my reality and nothing else meant anything else. And so I lived that life to the fullest among others like myself who did the same. And when we spoke to other people, when we interact with other people, we were justified in living that lifestyle. And our conviction to that lifestyle was so absolute that we swayed younger people just by our commitment to it. And we made it look good. We made it look good. We were the guys wearing diamonds, and we were the guys wearing alligator shoes, and we were the guys that had automobiles first, and we were the guys that kept pockets full of money. Now, remember, we're in an impoverished atmosphere. So it's easy for you to touch the pimp on the corner, the number banker on the corner, the dope dealer on the corner, than it is the celebrity on the television. Mm-hmm. It's easier to communicate with that guy than it is with the teacher who's telling you that if you get a diploma, you know, you can get a good job and you can have all these things. Well, the guys that are getting the diplomas and getting good jobs don't seem to be having these things. All the things that guys all on the street corner have. That, yeah, that the guys on the street corner. I mean, it was a glamorous, glamorous subculture that really existed and it was not just on the movies in fact the movies never do it justice but i lived in a world mm -hmm. i came up in a world where seeing people with stacks and stacks of money was very very common go to the dice game it may be two or three hundred thousand dollars on the table and it i wanted that i wanted that these guys did everything with ease it seemed they didn't ask the price of stuff. They just said, I want that, and they went and got that. So that segues to my next question on this topic, and then we'll move forward. I'll read a statement from Amy Isard from that same article on February 26th. She said, the pandemic gave some groups an opportunity to restructure. We see different names popping up to restructure, which denotes that there's some sort of structure in place in the first place. I will glean from Daria's op-ed for a second about us coming together for this fair funding fight. This disconnected community, this disjointed community, this community that's battling in silos, and the mentoring efforts are so disjointed and disconnected that it waters down the effectiveness. Enter the street mentor. Please help our listener understand how intentional a lot of these street guys are when they are grooming these young men and women to do some of the things we see them doing. Absolutely. So now you have the impact of the OG. OG meaning original gangster, meaning veteran street guy. 
these guys sometimes, and I would say oftentimes, will convince a younger guy at a certain age that you can't go to jail because you're a juvenile. So if you get caught with this or that or the third, all you have to worry about is going to some detention center, some lockup, and whatever happens to you, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. We see that now with the shooter, with this particular shooter. He's 14, right? Absolutely. Finish with your story. Absolutely. And so kids are being naive and impressed by what they see because this is a visual generation. You can say all you want to say to them, but unless you can show it to them, they're not responding. Well, these guys are able to put their money where their mouth is. Speaking of the pandemic, we saw a rise in not just violence due to the unleashing of this mental health pandemic that we've been under and, and, and not been talked about for years, but there's been a pandemic of mental health going on forever. But anyway, we saw 14-year-olds running around with ten dollars to $20,000 cash that they were able to access because of mentoring that took place mm-hmm. by older OGs or it may be females where they were able to access access to PAU money. I saw it with my own eyes, right? Different kind of hustle. Yeah, yeah. So you have individuals strung out on drugs. They were trading drugs for Social Security numbers. Mm. I mean, these are some of the most creative and committed and determined young people that the earth has ever produced. But they're being steered in another direction. That's Just imagine if that creativity was in this school, in this classroom. That's the term. That's the term. And, and and from a conventional standpoint, many of us think, well, I'll have an impact on the kids when I when I get time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to volunteer once every four or five weeks, uh, three or four weeks. When the street mentor, they're on their grind day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And when you read about that 13-year-old in the paper, you're like, how did that happen? He or she has been putting in the work. And so let's talk about the conditions at the Erie School District. Dari, I'll start with you. At one point, at what point did you start to see ooh, some of what's going on in these communities is A, starting to spill over into the schools. B, I'm starting to get concerned. When did that happen for you? Sure. And and I want to say one other thing too, Marcus, before we go on here. The other thing I think you mentioned differences in listeners. I think it's important for all of your listeners to understand this is all generational. Mm-hmm. That did, this did not just pop up or happen. This is because of generations of issues and mm-hmm. actions mm-hmm. that we've taken or not taken. And mm-hmm. I think that is important to remember. Absolutely. This boy did not just get up that morning, find a Absolutely. gun and go. There's a lot ha- happening yep. there. So um, as far as the Erie School District, you know, I was really happy. Um, I thought Brian Polito's um, article with Ed Palatella earlier this week, I was grateful for it because Brian laid out the fact that we have been made aware, you know, from Brother D, from others, that this concern is younger, that there is a concern about these kids, you know, at a very young age now with the violence. Um, We had been discussing what steps to take. But as you know, I think as the community knows, these are delicate issues. We also have concerns from members in the community about over-policing, about the school-to-prison pipeline, about making kids feel like where they go to school is a prison. So I really want to say that at least from the time my term started, we were having these conversations. I believe they even predated our the current board's term because we knew something had to be done. But again, trying to balance that issue 
but we had known that things were spilling over Mm -hmm. at least from the time the kids came back from the pandemic this Mm -hmm. year. To the point that you just made in today's article, today's article by Matthew Rink and Kevin Flowers, more security expected when classes resume. There was a statement in there by Erie High Jr. Genesis Garcia, 17-year-old, and she talked about wanding and things along those lines. Her quote is, something should be done, maybe not just wanding people sporadically, but wanding everyone, I guess. But here's her mother's reaction to that. Genesis' mother, Diana Garcia, says uh, she doesn't necessarily want walk through metal detectors. I can understand her point of view on that because we don't want it to look like a prison. Basically, if you put those things in its in, it's almost like reflecting of a prison. Children don't want to feel that way. So what do you want to make it feel better? It's difficult to say in that aspect. I'll go to you on this, Brother D. Absolutely. Because people are listening saying, how come the district hasn't had metal detectors up until now? It was introduced and you finished the statement. And I am so glad that you brung that up. Because one of the things we don't want to do is get caught up in the whole blame thing that's being done right now because this is all of our problem. But think back of the resistance that we got in the fair funding thing. All the long on this journey, there's always been resistance from individuals who felt like they didn't want this to happen. They didn't want the school to look like a prison. They didn't want the children to feel bad. But there's certain situations where you can't have your cake and eat it, too. First of all, metal detectors is an accepted part of society and has been for the last 30 years. You can't go to the hospital without going through a metal detector. You can barely go anywhere without going through a metal detector. And if at the cost of the children's lives, I don't know how many people are aware of how massive Erie High is as a building. And the amount of entrances in and out of that building makes it very, very tough to secure. And I don't care if you had a whole squadron of people, it would still be hard to secure. So metal detectors is the least that we can do, in my opinion. But also I want to highlight that it's things like that that has kept the district in that damn if we do, damn if we don't scenario of trying to make sure that our kids are safe. We have always tried to be sensitive and and cognizance and, and listening to the concerns and the feelings of people who thought differently from us, always. But at what cost? At what cost? It's like right now with the blue coats, a lot of people don't understand that our sense of urgency comes from living in a real-time situation that we know that what we do today could save a life today. Now, we know that there's changes that need to be made and things that people want to implement, but it's going to take time for that to happen. Maybe six months. It might not happen for a couple years. So what happens to our children in between today? We saw that with the whole unified Erie thing, right? There was resistance. We came home. We were ready to launch. People backed out because of pressure from people who thought different. Mm -hmm. Before we can get that thing up and running, 17 more people died. 17 more Erie residents died, lost their lives, Marcus. And we know for a fact that at least 11 of them would have been impacted by the Unified Erie Initiative. But that was taken from them by people who thought different and who felt different. 
There comes a time when you say, what is the cost of our hesitation? What is the cost of a little bit of uncomfortability? Uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, um, uh, the look of the building. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Something as generic as that. Um, I would rather for the children's building to look a little bit more um, controlled, if that's a, if I could use that word in this time, than for somebody to have the idea that they want to bring weapons into that building and basically have free reign to do it. I don't see too much difference between winding and a standing metal detector. Now, I'm not trying to piss anybody off, but the truth of the matter is the only way to address violence is to address the violent. Mm -hmm. And metal detectors is a surefire way to address the violent because it will make them uncomfortable with that behavior or attempting to bring a weapon into our school. I have two things that I want to touch on here. One in that same article, where they utilized a student named Ryan, 14-year-old, he gave his testimony about how he felt during the shooting and what was his uh, mindset throughout that whole ordeal. It also pointed out that a substitute teacher closed the classroom door and held it shut. I thought substitute teacher, knowing that the district already struggles to get substitute teachers. Then I thought about a line, which I thought was so spot on. This is my favorite line from your op-ed. Our families are in crisis, and this was written by Daria Devlin. Our families are in crisis. Our schools are struggling to hold back the tide of mental health concerns Mm. that were always present but are now exacerbated by the pandemic. And so whether it's trying to find substitute teachers, the mental health decline of these students, we don't get a hold of this thing. It's not even just the gun violence. It's the ripple effect of these other things Mm -hmm. that it that start to decline. Talk to that, please. You know, I mean, Marcus, I I really feel like the pandemic messed us up in ways I don't think we really were aware of. Mm -hmm. I think many of us felt like, okay, it's over. We'll go back to our regular lives. And we're just beginning to understand what the impact was, especially for kids Mm -hmm. living in homes where there is pain, where there is trauma. Now they were stuck in those homes for 18 months. We've had this conversation. The only bright spot was the school. And we took that away. We had to. And I stand by that decision. But the pain is deep. And we're going to have to be facing that for many years. And I want to say something about the metal detectors, too. I've been thinking about this a lot. It's almost like a sick patient. With the metal detectors, that's the triage. That's what we have to do to get in there and stop anything worse from happening. But there, we have to get to the root of the sickness. And that, I believe, is where culture building comes in. Mm -hmm. So we can put up metal detectors, and I think we can do that. And by the way, the metal detectors we're looking at, I think, are really unobtrusive. I mean, I, I, I think we're doing the best we can to make kids just not feel like this is a prison. But having them there is only step one. We then have to get to all the culture building. What does the school feel like? How do the kids feel when they're there? I was up at Erie High a number of weeks ago, and I'll say, and I said this in my op-ed, the physical plant, what it looks like, the message we're sending to kids, those are the important conversations to have now. Get the metal detectors up, get it safe, get it clear for everybody, and then we got to dig in Mm. on those harder, and those are the harder conversations. And so if you go back and rewatch that old movie, Lean On Me, Joe Clark, now you can understand why he did what he did and he stood by it. He didn't care what the parents or anybody else said, and a lot of people push back. And it comes a time, as you said earlier, Brother D, you damned if you do, damned if you don't, when it comes to the safety of our children, I'm willing to let you be upset. 
mm-hmm. and frustrated mm-hmm. just so long as we save one of the lives or the lives in general of our children. You think about 9-11 and airports. It is forever a part of our lives. Federal buildings. So Absolutely. it's not like they're being singled out like, oh, this is the only place. And I'm not making light of it, but from a societal standpoint, it's kind of where we are. Guns are an unchecked issue that is constantly being debated in legislature, in neighborhoods. I can go on. Let's go to the actual shooting, the day of the shooting. Talk to us about that day, that morning, leading up to it. When you heard about it, give us the backstory. So we do uh, hallway walks at Erie High before we leave and take our break and come back for lunch. And so, no different than any other day. Guys get the kids in the building. They go through. They do their hallway walk. That particular day, we decided we were going to use that hour after for training, meeting, catching up on some things. And so, we're all in the church. And stressing the fact that everybody is saying that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, I'm, I'm behind the pulpit saying this. Well, we know that when is every time we open the doors at Erie High. I literally said this that morning. I look at my phone, and it's off the hook, blowing up. I answer one of the calls. Brother D, we just had a kid shot in Erie High. In Erie High. The shock was paralyzing for me. Even though I've been saying this every day. In fact, the night before, I was telling a a pastor friend of mine, I am sick of the lack of sense of urgency, the overwhelming lack of sense of urgency that I get from a lot of so-called leaders and influential people about this issue. They want to tell me it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and then they're moving like snails. And so anyway, you know, our response, we're on our way. What can we do to help, right? And as I sat back and thought about it, I thought about the whole mental health thing that we had been saying for years. I thought about the fact that we were telling everybody, listen, we should be slow to bring the kids back to school. The fact that we don't know what's coming back in the school, but these kids have been totally immersed into some real dysfunctional environments and influence for almost two years. School was the only normal that some of these kids saw, and it's been taken, disrupted, and I stand by the decision to close the schools as well. It needed to happen to get the pandemic under control. We saw our kids out in the community when they should have been at home on the curfew. They should have been at home on the lockdown, but they weren't. They were running the streets. They weren't wearing masks and none of that. And so these kids being turned out of the school were turned over to their realities, and some of their realities are actual nightmares. And that was around the clock, as Daria said. And so there's a great uploading of dysfunction and bad mental health and trauma, real trauma, 
See, some of the kids come to school already traumatized. They're being traumatized by the pandemic now, just as we all were. So, as she said, imagine a young person trying to cope with his nightmare at home or his nightmare in his neighborhood, plus the nightmare of the pandemic. And then the only thing that you had that looked like it was supposed to be normal was the time that you spent in school, and that's gone. Now you come back into this building, we got two years worth of freshmen, kids that's never been in a high Good school. Good point. Never thought about that. Never been in a high never school, thought right? About that. And all of these kids come over, they're still carrying a mental, I mean, a middle school mentality. And now they're all squeezed in, and we want to squeeze them right back into the classroom. But we need to go back to this. Let's listen. What happened to you over this last year and a mm-hmm. half? What was it like for you, you know, being out of school? How do you feel right now? Yeah. How do we gauge what they brung back? If we don't, shame on us. But here's the other thing. We know they brung something back. And we know that they brung something unhealthy back mm-hmm. because it was some unhealthy stuff going on with them in the first place. I don't know if you're in a position to speak on this, Brother D, and if you can, I appreciate it. The young man in question, is this a, a young person that was on your radar or on the Blue Coats radar? Not in the wise of him being the first one to shoot somebody in the school. For other reasons, the young man has some issues, has some issues. But what I want everybody to hear about this young man, because I know everybody is talking about slam him, give him the life. Oh, man, they can't charge him as an adult. Look at this scenario. The backstory, which you know by now, is that there were some issues with the young man's family where his mother was attacked. This is the story. The young man witnessed this attack. Supposedly, during the time he witnessed the attack, supposedly, he had a weapon and he didn't defend his mother. And there's a videotape going around of this situation. Mm. And so this young man has a weapon. His mom is being attacked. He doesn't use the weapon. Now he's being bombarded by those in his circle, his peers, that he saw, he's a coward, he didn't defend his mother. So he's emotionally being just beat to hell, right? Mm-hmm. You didn't do this, you didn't do that. The kid still has the gun. He, he didn't turn the gun in, right? Yeah. He still didn't use it. Think about that. Mm-hmm. He didn't use it. If these stories are true, he didn't use it while his mother was being assaulted, He didn't use it when he was being attacked verbally, emotionally, and mentally and called everything but a child of God. Finally, this is four days later, and supposedly that morning he was still under attack for being a coward and not using a gun to defend his mother. I think he had had about maybe enough. Mm. You take that couple with the fact that he's got some issues, He's living in an environment, all of our kids are in certain neighborhoods, living in an environment that's riddled with violence, and this is the norm, because I want some of you listeners to understand, for some of the students in Erie High that day, gunshots were not unnormal. Unfortunately. Think about that. 
for some of those students, it was minimal. Mm-hmm. That amount of gunshots wasn't that big of a deal to some of these students. Because they hear it so often. So often. I want to segue to Daria, if to whatever extent you can speak on it. What did this feel like with your school board hat mm-hmm. on now? Because obviously this is a cold red situation as a school board member. It's our, our, our deepest fear has come to pass, come as you to pointed pass. out on the news. What's the reaction like from a school board perspective? Well, and, and I mean, I think it's it's true. I spoke to two other school board members the other night after our emergency meeting and said, let's hope that this is the worst we ever have to deal with because this mm-hmm. is, this is you know, the nightmare. Um, I was actually with Lori Pickens that morning. Um, we were meeting about a couple of other things. She had just walked out of my office. We got the text from Brian Polito letting the board know what had happened. And I am, I am sad to say that I wasn't shocked. We were upset, but I wasn't shocked mm-hmm. because we had listened. Brother D has been screaming it. Everybody has been screaming it. It wasn't if but when. And so the when happened. Um, so that was a terrible feeling. And looking back on it, I wish I had been more surprised, but we weren't. So, you know, I just want to say for a moment, I feel like the responses we're hearing from our folks who really functioned under extreme circumstances, they did everything they were taught to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lori Pickens herself mentioned in our board meeting, none of us can know how we would act in that moment, no matter how many times you practice, no matter how many plans you have, when the moment comes, what will you do? And I think for for the most part, our folks did do from Principal Orlando to our chief of security, Parker. You know, we were so grateful. I mean, every first responder in the city descended upon that building, all coming to make sure that our kids were okay. The blue coats were outside keeping parents calm. Our staff was keeping parents calm. We heard heroic stories of our teachers who pulled kids out of hallways, even the story you're mentioning about a substitute mm-hmm. who, who didn't even really need to be there that day. Right. So, you know, again, from a school board perspective, I'm I'm horrified this day came, but I feel that in the moment, our people did everything they had been taught to do, and now we have to work to make sure it never happens again. And let me say this personally before we segue to the next part of this conversation. You know, when when it's time to run for school board, it's one of those positions that everybody in their grandmother's grandmother lines up, I want to be on the school board, I want to be on the school board, and I have said during this last, this last election cycle, check the backgrounds of folks who are running for school board. We are not in a position to elect people in a moment such as this who need to figure out our children, Mm -hmm. who need to figure out our community, who need you to give them an 800-page report on, well, give me the history of the day. Then you don't need to be in this position if you need all of that. Keep that in mind as we go through these election cycles. We are trying to turn the tide generationally this is not going to be a case study. Somebody has to come to the table with some sort of knowledge of what's going on Absolutely. so they can figure out how to fix this. Absolutely. And what could possibly be more important? I mean, city council, county council, these are important things, of course. But when I looked at it, when I searched my heart, mm-hmm. what could possibly more important than the future of our kids in their schools? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what, Dar? I'll stay with you on that. Your op-ed, I mean, you, the statement you just made strikes to the heart of your op-ed. Give us, you know, what was going on in your mind and your heart when you wrote this. Well, you know, as I said, what a terrible moment. Um, We were, you know, as a school board member, you're paralyzed. I'm not going to head up there. There's nothing I can offer. Can I read your title beforehand for those that didn't get a chance to read it? It was in Sunday's newspaper. Time to fight for the hearts and souls of our kids. Go ahead. 
Well, you know, Marcus, in many ways, we go back to that time in, in 1716. We were fighting for the money. As I said in the op-ed, we were all together. We all knew the fight. We all knew what had to be done. We were all moving in the same direction. And I feel that somehow that's gone away. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic. I don't. I, I really don't understand why. But now, all of a sudden, we have this community disorganization. We have folks out here doing whatever they want to do. And we've lost sight of the focus on our right. kids. And so when this moment happened, I thought, you know, it's a terrible thing, but maybe this wakes us up and shakes us up to say we all got to get back on board for these kids because we can and when we all move in the same direction from law enforcement to our families to our community members our nonprofits our elected officials we can make wonderful things happen Absolutely. for our kids mm-hmm. and we have to what more we did it for money money is fleeting as i said in the op-ed these are our children that we are talking about mm-hmm. and this is the moment to come together see in this op-ed brother d daria is talking about the why not the YMCA, the W-H-Y, the why. Is it even possible to turn the tides on such a critical crisis without being fully in tune with the why? Absolutely not. You must know the why. You must know the root cause because, like I said earlier, if you just keep, you can't put a Band-Aid on an open wound. All you do is cause it to get infected. We must stop the bleeding first, and the only way to stop the bleeding is to know the why. But before I go any further, can I just go back to something Daria said? I want to tip my hat to those people in that building, because I'm going to give you a scenario that nobody's talking about. It's been common knowledge among the school district, parents, the community, that something was going on with the young people in our city. Mm -hmm. When you read the newspaper, you see most of the shootings are being caused by school-age children. That's not a new story. That's been going on for the last year or so, right? We know that we see some of it in our schools, right? Some of these individuals are in our school. We had a young man that was released by a judge who shot somebody, supposedly, but the judge wanted him back in school, right? Mm -hmm. So when this thing happened in that building, Brother Marcus, we all knew that we're going into active shooter protocol, right? These teachers were locked in the room with some of those kids who performed these acts. Y'all don't hear what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Not knowing, not knowing what type of gun situation is on the other side of the door, but also not knowing what kind of gun situation is in the classroom with them. Good point. And they were stuck there for hours. And if you could just imagine some of the mental health stuff, that our children are experiencing, like the disrespect, the aggressive behavior, the intimidation that was taking place inside of that classroom. And this teacher not knowing, those teachers were heroes in that moment. Mm -hmm. If any of my listening, I applaud you so greatly uh, we can't applaud you enough. Every administrator that was locked in those and every student that held their peace and held their cool, also knowing that some of their classmates might potentially be holding. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the students that told us that the young man had brought the gun to school Monday. Okay, see, because our children are not unaware. But they held it down. They held their pieces. They went through that lockdown process 
not understanding. I don't know what they were feeling in that moment, but I knew it had to be horrible. Yeah. But yet they did it. They didn't rebel against the structure. Some of them helped their teachers by talking and calming other students. And they did it like we need to do the solution to this together. Together. I'm going to get Daria's reaction to this, and it's right along these lines. This is a post by Maurice Troop, who's an assistant principal at Erie High. And I reposted it because I thought it was very well stated. And he says, and I quote, I have worked at Erie High since it opened as an assistant principal. Over the years, when I tell people I work there, they say, I pray for you. Or they draw a cross on their chest and say, God bless you. They do or say this in a negative fashion for whatever reason. My response has been and still is 95% of the kids at Erie High are typical high school kids, just like most of us were. They have typical teenage issues. They are really great kids who want to learn and better themselves. It's unfortunate that the 95% that come to school and behave like many of us did in high school get overshadowed by the 5% of students who come to school and for whatever reason, don't seem to adjust to the structure of the school. Daria, speak to that. Mo is absolutely right, of course. And I mean, Mo and I went to high school together. So yes, that is how we behaved at high, in high school. But he is right. I mean, these are good kids. I don't know if you saw the interviews with the kids in the aftermath. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were, these are normal kids who are who went through a terrible ordeal and were speaking about it and were respectful and doing mm-hmm. all the things that they needed to do. We have wonderful kids in this community. And you'll see in the coming days and weeks, the district will be taking some steps to make sure that this one or two percent isn't affecting the rest we will have to make some changes up there and we will be doing that but mo is right these are wonderful kids and by the way whether they're wonderful or not they're the future of this city Mm -hmm. so if there is improvements to be done we all better look inside ourselves and figure out how to do that hey this goes back to your op-ed when you said that we did it then because we recognized that those kids quote-unquote suffering in those schools quote-unquote were really all of our kids Mm -hmm. in our schools and if we could muster the collective will to fight for something as fleeting as a few million dollars, you said, I have to believe that we can muster it again this time to fight for the hearts and souls Absolutely. of our eerie kids. Very, very Absolutely. well stated. Very well stated. Brother D, you gave us a lot of the inside baseball, if you will, the behind the scenes look at what's going on and what's been going on, especially um, with the life of this young alleged shooter. In closing, Talk to us about what you want us to keep in mind as we see all of this playing out. You've given us a lot to think about as is. But what do you want people to keep in mind as this thing unfolds in the media, as public opinion just rages back and forth like like a, like a, a tennis match? Mm-hmm. What do you want us to keep in mind? Absolutely what you just said, what Daria wrote in her op-ed. We did it before. All the people, all the resources, all the things are in place for us to do it again. What I would like people to keep in mind is that we faced opposition at every point. At every point during this journey, there were those who refused to join on and support the rally for fair funding. People that you would have thought would have been leading the charge said, no, I'm not going to come in unless something in it for me. So we just kept it moving. 
There were people who said that we weren't going to be able to successfully merge the high schools without there being guns and shootings and gang fights. And we said we have to because we didn't get enough support for the fair funding rally, so we have to do what we got to do. And we did it. At every turn, we did what we needed to do, and we made it happen. And we have the right hearts, right hearts, to make this happen again. I believe by with everything in me, God is not a wasteful God. And yes, I'm going to talk about my faith in this moment. God is not a wasteful God. What happened at Erie High was to get that sense of urgency that some of us have been lacking. We're going to always have people that are going to see negative. They're going to see we can't. But we just need to rally the people that are seeing we can. Our students deserve it. Our students want it. Yes, 95, I'll go 98% of those students are some great, excellent people. Those that are impacted by that 1%, if you get rid of that 1%, and I don't mean to, like, get rid of them like they're, you know, to be thrown to the trash, but if we take that 1% and get a handle on it, you're going to see the school go up to maybe 99% just regular students mm-hmm. just wanting to come to school and be regular kids, right? So I believe that what everybody should take away from this is that there's nothing we can't do when we do it together. Let's take this blame unless we're going to blame ourselves and get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Everybody owns a piece of this problem, whether you got kids in school or, or not, whether you are, um, are supportive of kids or not. This is a human issue. It's a human issue. The young man that fired the shot in the school was also walking the streets of the community. Mm-hmm. So it's not like bullets are flying around Erie High every day. Do you realize how long we held it down without somebody getting shot? Let's talk about that fact that we were able to hold it down. And watch this. This young man was pushed, pushed into this act by others, by others. That's not the first time I believe that a gun made it into Erie High, but it was never fired. We have done some incredible, amazing work up in Erie High and throughout the district. And I want everybody to keep that in mind as we do some more incredible, amazing work. But keep in mind that you have a a part to play. You have a part to play, whether it's just supporting, whether it's you saying I'm not going to be into the negativity, I won't point the finger, I'm only going to take responsibility for what I have not done Mm -hmm. or what I have done. Whatever the case is, every adult— I'll quote Mildred Prim. Mildred Prim was a community activist that fought for kids. She took me in when I was a homeless teenager, and she bought me my first leather jacket. And I asked her why she had did such an incredible thing for me, because back then that was a big deal. You know, if you had a leather jacket and the the jacket was about $100 or more, and nobody had never spent that much money on me. You know, and it was Easter, you know, and you know how in African-American community, Easter's a big deal, and you got to have something new where you, you know, you ain't nothing, right? Anyway, her answer is what sticks with me. She said, because children are the responsibility of the world. Every adult on this planet shapes the world that children are born and living in. There you go. 
And so none of us can afford to point the finger at anybody else. If you come to me with some blame, I'm going to ask to see your resume. On that note, on that note, I, I, you brought up the book. I think about the account of Mordecai and Esther, and Esther was there for a time such as this. Two things, Dara, and you can have the final word. One, are you looking at this moment and saying, yes, this is why I was called to serve? Do you feel like it's coming full circle? And two, what do you say to people on the sideline if they're contemplating how much of themselves they should be giving to community as they see community in crisis? Brother D is right that it's not the time to point fingers, except if you're pointing them at yourself. What are you doing in this moment to help? And whether it is stepping forward to serve, I mean, we do need, as you mentioned, strong leaders at the school board level, you know, folks going into education what are you doing to serve this community and if you can't answer that question you know don't be pointing the the finger at someone else who stepped forward we all have something to offer and to give to this and yes i felt that i could have an impact here i could make a difference i hope i am we have a lot of work to do this was a moment the work now begins Mm -hmm. so i would ask everyone to step forward and ask themselves what can i do to help Mm. Daria Devlin, Daryl, Brother D. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show under the worst of circumstances. But certainly it is a conversation that you have to have clear, experienced voices in order to put it into context. And so in that respect, thank you so much for what you've given our listeners and our viewers today. Context. For those of you who are listening and watching the show, this is a tough situation. I mean, as the brother said on the news, our worst fear. And thank goodness, thank God that there was no fatality. Amen. There was no fatality. And as Daria pointed out earlier, hopefully this is the worst that we have to endure. This should be a wake-up call of all wake-up calls. It is not the first time that our children have been in harm's way when it comes to gun violence. We've had an aide get shot in the doorway at McKinley once Mm -hmm. upon a time. Mm -hmm. We had gunshots at McKinley Park during a YMCA after school program. Mm -hmm. The list goes on. And for some odd reason, we keep retreating back to these silos and just doing us. Mm -hmm. I guess hoping that the community will figure it out on its own. And here is what I hope, as Daria pointed out in this op-ed. If this is not the time, when is the time? to come together and figure this out. And so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, the viewer and the listener, for spending time with us here on Next with Marcus Atkinson. Again, you can go to our Facebook page, like the page, follow us on Twitter at 814-NEXT. Lend your voice to the dialogue. You can listen to us every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. on 91.3 FM. For Next, I am Marcus Atkinson. We will see you next time.